Well, you all know the culture in which we live in and some of the issues there. And we're approaching, obviously, a big election. Some people feel like our country is on the verge of vanishing, at least in terms of what we have traditionally known and liberties that we have enjoyed and those sort of things. And there is a little bit of a frenzy out there, but I think we need to give people somewhat of a biblical perspective, and the biblical perspective is that God is sovereign over all things. That doesn't mean we're irresponsible. I think we should, as citizens, take our responsibility more seriously than even the world, but not to the point that we're frazzled and worried and concerned overly and all that. And just as John said in the first century, probably knowing that Antichrist was not living at that time, in First John we saw that passage, chapter 2, the spirit of Antichrist was alive in the first century, and it has been ever since. Well, in our Olivet Discourse, we're going to look a little bit at this personage called Antichrist. I think that's the focus of the passage in verse 15 in Matthew chapter 24. And from that, we want to understand the times in which we live in, because there is a spirit of Antichrist that is at work in our culture as well. But I think from that, we also gain insight into how to respond and look forward to what the Lord's going to do in the days to come, not only in our time frame, but in the future from after the church is gone. So we want to understand the times. came across a Chinese proverb. It actually sounds sounds a little bit more like a yogi uh, bearism. To prophesy is extremely difficult, especially with respect to the future. Supposed to be a Chinese proverb, but could have come right out of the mouth of Yogi Berra. Well, in the Olivet Discourse, we're still in this period of time called the Tribulation. In fact, we're going to look at the midpoint, and we know this is the midpoint, not from the Olivet Discourse, but we know it's the midpoint because we're going to review back Daniel chapter 9. Daniel pinpoints the whole chronology that Jesus, I think, is giving us an overview of. Now, we've gone into it a little bit more detail than what we have specifically in Matthew 24, because there's other passages that illuminate what's going on there. That's why last time I took you to the book of Revelation, well, actually the time before, when we were talking about this worldwide revival that is yet future, the book of Revelation gives us a lot more detail in terms of how God is going to bring that about, and I think that detail comes from several of those passages. And we're going to do a little bit of the same, because in the Alphabet Discourse, Jesus is giving the disciples a summary. Now remember, they're Jewish. Being Jewish, they were familiar. In fact, he spent much of his ministry reviewing a lot of Old Testament material. And even apart from what he reviewed, they would have been raised and they would have been familiar with a lot of prophetic scriptures. So when Jesus gives them a summary or a survey of that 70th week of Daniel, 
they would have already have had a background of, of understanding to be able to put these things together. Now, those of us that are not Jewish and perhaps not as familiar with some of the Old Testament passages need to review some of them in order to understand clearly what Jesus is talking about. He's going to talk about something, and he gives us a clue where it comes from in verse 15. So we'll look at that. Where we completed this first portion of the tribulation period, Jesus describes it as the beginning of birth pangs. So what you saw in verses 4 through 14 is just the beginning, and I think those things will persist throughout the seven years. They begin in the first three and a half and will persist as the years progress towards the end of the seven-year period. Now, Jesus uses another little phrase that we'll look at. We won't get there yet. But he describes the second three and a half years as great tribulation. And I use his description to outline verses 15 through 28. Because the beginning of birth pangs is not as severe as what we will see at the end. In fact, things will progressively get worse and worse and worse. The analogy of birth pangs we've been using over and over, and as you get closer to the birth, we're getting close to the screaming stage in the seven-year period of time. Jesus calls it great tribulation. Something kicks it off in verse 15. And beginning in verse 15 through verse 22, we have a description of the destructiveness of this period of time. We have a few details that we'll put together in terms of what this period of time will be like. And it starts off in verse 15 with this despicable desecration. If you haven't already figured it out, I'm going to use D's as my alliteration here. Help you to cement it in your mind and uh, reinforce the concepts that we're looking at. So we won't get past verse 15 today because there's a lot there. Part of the reason for that is Jesus is assuming the disciples are understanding, for example, Daniel. Notice what he says at, uh, in the middle there, spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So he's referring back more than likely to not just Daniel chapter 9, but uh, there's some other passages in Daniel that we'll look at as well that refer to this abomination of desolation. Now to us, it's kind of a vague, maybe cryptic little description, so we want to look at it in detail. And particularly, what the disciples would have understood in their understanding of the book of Daniel. Now, I've got this slide because, remember, what you want to do is read the whole sentence. You don't want to break it up. So you want to know the context of all of the words in that sentence. Sentence doesn't end. In fact, it's not a sentence, verse 15. The sentence doesn't end till the end of verse 16. And really, the, the subject is not till you get to verse 16. So when it says, then those... Now, he's already referred to someone earlier, but that's the subject of the whole sentence. Those must flee. Now, why do they have to flee? Well, verse 15 explains something that's going to happen that's going to change everything. It's already bad during this first three and a half years, 
But now it is so bad that you better take shelter. You better get out of town, essentially. Those who are in Judea must flee. And then he's going to expand that. And we won't get any further than uh, this first sentence. We probably won't even get to verse 16. But what do they flee from? And what are some of the reasons for that? We want to develop that in the passage this morning. So it begins with therefore. Now the therefore ties this in with what precedes. In other words, it's not separate. It's not a new topic. It's not something different. It proceeds out of the beginning of these birth pangs. And because these things have already begun, therefore we can anticipate something significant is going to take place because that is what Daniel describes. So what Jesus is doing is he's giving us just the bare minimum the disciples would have understood. He's assuming that we know the following, at least three things. At least three things we can gather are some of the background, so we need to look at them. Number one, the presence of Antichrist. Now, if we're talking about Daniel's 70th week, And clearly, he's referring to that. The disciples would put the pieces together. And remember what is described in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24? A person that's called the prince. A prince is going to arise. In other words, a world leader. An individual that's going to rise to the top of power. And he's going to have such influence that he basically will have global impact. Israel is going to enter into a contract with them, or a covenant, at the beginning. We've talked about that at the beginning of this seven-year period. That's also assumed by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. And now, what he's going to focus in on is that personage. He's not going to give us any detail. In fact, he doesn't even identify him. But that individual is going to do certain things such that we have what is called this abomination that takes place. So we're going to look at some other scriptures that tell us what that is, and it'll help us to understand what's going on there. And I think it's pretty clear in scripture, it's not so clear from Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, He assumes that we have a little bit of understanding, a little bit of background, so we're going to talk a little about who this personage is, and in fact on your outline sheet I'm going to kind of close it out with some of the characteristics from several other passages of this personage. Now, he will be clearly identified during this seven-year period, and this will be the most evident sign that he is in fact on the scene, what we have pictured in verse 15, okay? Second thing that Jesus assumes is that there's the temple in existence. Because it's the temple, now Jesus describes it as the holy place. I'll talk about why he uses that word or that phrase. But he's already talked about, and one of the reasons I stressed last week, that in 70 A.D., This is after Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse. Jesus predicts 70 A.D., particularly in Luke's Gospel, the temple is destroyed. And Jesus has already said, not one stone will be left standing. 
Remember he said that in the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. Well, if the disciples are putting it together, now he's talking about the temple again. Is he contradicting himself, or is something messed up here? What's going on in terms of the temple? Well, 70 AD came, the temple was utterly destroyed. In fact, the city was destroyed. The city was burnt. The Jews were spread throughout the known world at that time. The Jews never came back. They were never a nation again until almost 2,000 years later in our lifetime, well, some of our lifetimes, the nation of Israel came back to their original homeland, not the entire homeland, but a portion of it, from the same bloodline of Abraham, Jewish people, retaining their same language, keeping their culture, and in large measure keeping a very pure bloodline, their culture, their language, their background, their religion, and reestablish themselves as a nation. A modern-day miracle. Now, we don't recognize it as that, but uh, if you think about it, how many people have ever regathered after 2,000 years of being scattered? When people are scattered, they generally intermarry, and they lose the bloodline, lose their, lose their traditions, lose everything, and never regather as the same people. Israel did that because God is not done with them. So the disciples... Uh, Jesus has already said the temple's going to be destroyed. Okay, well, now he's talking about a temple. What's going on here? Now, we know from our perspective and from a lot of Bible prophecy that there will be a temple during this seven-year period of time. The Old Testament prophets speak of it, and here Jesus is talking about it as well, and there's other passages in the New Testament as well. So, the existence of a temple, where does it come from? Well, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. And by the way, the Jews today, the Orthodox Jews, have everything that they need to construct a temple in a matter of weeks. They have all of the materials. In fact, they have made preparation for a priesthood and everything that is required to resume temple sacrifices, much like they did during the first century, during the life of Christ. They have everything in place. The only obstacle, obviously, is what? The Dome of the Rock, <laughs> which exists, which you've seen in many of the photographs that I've shown. It's on the exact spot, here it is on that photograph, the exact spot where the temple in the first century existed, at least most archaeologists believe that, and it's on the same site where Solomon built the first temple in Old Testament time. So we have the existence of a temple. Jesus assumes that. So are you talking about a temporary temple? Because I mean, the temple, to make it like it was, even in today's standards, would be difficult to make because of the, you know, the, the stone that was made out of it. Or are you saying they've already cut the stones? They've cut the stones, yeah. They've got everything that they need is what I read in different articles. Yeah. It's not public viewing, obviously, then. No, in fact, oh, I don't know, four or five years ago, some of these Orthodox Jews, they, I can't remember, they brought something close to Temple Mount and it caused a riot. So all of this is just kind of behind the scenes, underground, but ready. And I have no reason to doubt the reports that I 
read about that. So, number two, the existence of a temple. There's no temple now. There hasn't been a temple since 70 A.D., but the Bible predicts there will be, and I believe that it won't be constructed until the probably the beginning of that seven-year period. Make sense? Thirdly, and we've been saying this all along, another assumption is Daniel's 70th week. And we have the clearest reference to it here in verse 15. Daniel's 70th week. So these are the assumptions. Now, we've talked quite a bit about that 70th week. So you ought to be familiar with it. We talked about the 70th week. Jews back then, this week. Yes, but the disciples would have. I think Jesus would have uh, made that clear to them. The disciples would have been aware that that week was yet future. And I think he's assuming what he's describing they understood to be Daniel's 70th week. We're going to talk about him. Yeah, very good. You're always one step ahead of me, Connie. Is another assumption, maybe, is that there would be those in Judea? Is that, that there would be Jews in Judea? Yes, that there would be a generation. Right. Now, the disciples might have thought that that same generation was in view. But as we've talked before, prophetically, prophets often frame their prophecies as if they're talking to that generation. In fact, there is a hermeneutical principle I'm going to go over as well in terms of how does that fit together. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. So, let's talk about this abomination of desolation. What is that all about? Well, the word only occurs about six times in Scripture, and we won't look at all of them. I'll just basically summarize them. But uh, essentially, the abomination... The essence of it, it's something very detestable, and particularly detestable to Jewish people. So it has something to do with uncleanness, has to do something with something with probably idolatry, it has something to do with something that is totally contrary to what God would have, something detestable and particularly detestable in the eyes of God as well. And amongst Jewish people, it would be something that it would be very detestable. So, this abomination, the first word there, there are two words. That word only occurs six times, and there are all of them. What's not on the slide there is Matthew 24, 15. But the parallel passage in Mark, that would be Mark 13, 14, And then in another passage, it refers to something detestable, not the same thing, but something detestable in Luke 16, 15. And then in Revelation 17, the word occurs two times in in two verses there, four and five, and it refers to false religion called the woman, the harlot. In Revelation chapter 17, she brings abominations upon the nation, upon the world, basically, in that passage. She's the she's pictured as a harlot, in other words, illicit or false religion, and all of that is this detestable. So it's related to idolatry. And then in verse twenty one we have a reference to nothing abominable will be in the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, there's holiness and purity and only things that are that are good 
the antithesis, in other words, the very opposite of abominations. So that's where the word occurs in the New Testament. Now it comes, or some passages in the book of Daniel, and there's some other references in the Old Testament that we won't necessarily look at. Now it's with that other word, and the idea of desolation is something that makes something unapproachable or something that you want to stay away from. So it's something detestable that keeps people away from something. And in the context, what where does this take place and what becomes abominable? Pardon me? The temple or the holy place is the way that Jesus describes it. And it appears that something happens in the Holy of Holies that makes the whole temple defiled. In other words, Jews do not or cannot now enter, in fact, not that all of them did, but they have to stay away from the temple because now it is an abomination. It has been desecrated. And what Connie was referring to, we'll get to that in a moment, is this happened historically before the coming of Christ even. And we're going to look at a passage that predicts that in the book of Daniel. Well, we have an example of what happened, and it's probably a prototype of what's going to take place during the seven-year period. Now, obviously, those that interpret prophecy from the preterist school of thought, what would they say in terms of what happened that is abominable? And when did it take place? They would say 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed by Gentiles. And Gentiles would have trotted over the temple, and that would have desecrated it, in their thinking, at least. And 70 A.D. could be another kind of a prototype of that future. But the Preterist limits it to 70 A.D., and what we are saying is this takes place during that 70th week of Daniel, the last week of Jewish history. So the phrase, together, is something that causes the temple to be desecrated, and that Jews would not be able to carry on their normal worship until there's a cleansing. And by the way, in uh, Old Testament time, in the 2nd century B.C., what Connie was referring to, the desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes in First Maccabees, it tells us of a restoring of that temple and a cleansing of it. But until that, the Jews could not enter. There's going to be something similar to that at the end of the age during the seven-year period. We'll get into all of that. So, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, and that phrase occurs three times in Daniel, the exact phrase, three times. One of them I've been referring to, chapter 9. So let's turn to those. First of all, let's review chapter 9, verse 27. Would somebody read that over again? Because what that's going to do, it's going to give us the time frame, and it's going to give us some other details. In fact, let me put uh, the other one on there. Somebody look up chapter 11. Somebody else got chapter 11? Connie's got 9, 9.27. Okay, Kim's got uh, 11, and Jim, I'll have you read the next one. You got uh, 9.27. You shall confirm the covenant with 
Now, who's the he there in that context? This prince, who we understand to be Antichrist, exactly, okay, he is going to what? Okay, and we've already talked about that covenant. This is at the beginning, and then what's going to happen? In the middle of the week. Okay, a couple of things. This prince breaks the covenant. And we have the exact time frame. The middle of that seven year period, which would be three and a half years. Daniel, in other places, referred, breaks up that seven year period into two parts. Two, three and a half year period. The book of Revelation, in about five different places, also refers to three and a half years. Sometimes it counts the number of days, 1260 days. Sometimes it refers to it as 42 months. 42 months, three and a half years. Sometimes it used the same kind of cryptic description that uh, Daniel uses. A time, times, plural, two more, and a half a time, three and a half total. So it's reiterated over and over in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. Jesus doesn't specify it, but he's talking about that same period of time. And he's referring back to Daniel. And probably specifically 27, but it may include 11 as well. You got that one, Kim? Read verse 31. The king of the north will send his army to make the temple at Jerusalem. They will stop the people from offering daily sacrifice, and they will set up and destroy and tear. The Lord will tell lies and do not, who have not obeyed God to be ruined. But those who know God and will be strong. Okay. Now that little passage, Daniel... In fact, that whole chapter is prophetic of a specific time that was fulfilled in the second century. And conservative Bible scholars see that passage fulfilled in a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And what he did, in fact, there's some passages outside of Scripture, 1 Maccabees chapter 1, Describes exactly what he did. And what he did is like 400 years after Daniel prophesied. And he fulfilled to the letter everything. In fact, if you want to read, uh, uh, get a Catholic Bible, First Maccabees chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, describes in some detail. In fact, I've got a copy of the passage with me. If you want to see it, I can show you the passage. But there's an individual... In fact, this individual, his name was Antiochus, and he would be Antiochus IV. He takes the name Epiphanes. In other words, he took the title Theos Epiphanes. And you know what Theos is, right? God. Epiphanes means God manifest, or the manifest God. He claimed to be God himself, interestingly. Now, his enemies, because of what he did to the Jewish people and what he did as a ruler in general, they gave him kind of a nickname. They called him Epimenes. Epimenes. Yeah, his enemies called him Epimenes. Epimenes means madman. <laughs> so they gave him kind of a nickname that sounds a little bit, a little bit like the title that he took for himself. But he viewed himself, he, did he have a self-image problem, do you think? 
<laughs> yeah, probably not. He was raised in the public schools. He had a very high uh, <laughs> high self esteem, exactly. So raised. It looks like his name too. Antiochus. Uh, probably does. I'm not sure. Yeah, good question though. Yeah, I'd have to look that one up. But anyway, this is who he is, and it already hints at what he is going to do. And one of the things that he did is that he went into the temple and claimed to be God and proclaimed himself God in the Jewish temple in the second century. And he murdered virtually tens of thousands of Jews. Another thing he did is he offered a swine or a pig on uh, on the Jewish altar at the temple. And obviously to do that would have desecrated it and meant that the Jews could no longer offer their their sacrifices in the temple. And then in uh, the later verses there, I think chapter 4 talks about a re-cleansing or a re-establishing of the worship after an invasion by Judas Maccabeus and that whole revolt there. They had to cleanse the temple, go through the ritual and and go through everything that is specified to be able to re-establish sacrifices. I think this, in fact, a lot of scholars see this as a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 11 and a prototype of that future Antiochus or that future Antichrist who will do something almost identical during the seven-year period. That abomination that makes desolate is what happens to the temple in the middle of the seven-year period that is yet future, as Jesus seems to indicate in verse 15. So let's look at another verse, chapter 12, verse 11. Jim, do you want to get that one real quick? This is another description where that same phrase occurs. This is the third one. And it just gives more detail, and more specifically it describes the desecration of the temple. Read that one. From the time that regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Okay, that's interesting. 1,290 days? Is that three and a half years? Uh, 30 days off. Well, I don't want to use the word off. <laughs> uh, 30 additional days to the three and a half years. And Daniel's very specific. In fact, he's going to give another date later on in chapter 12 that adds another 45 days. Connie? I was going to say, it's, it's off of triggers by our calendar. 30 days off of the 360-day calendar. And let's not say off. There's 30 additional days that Daniel is including here that he's describing during this seven-year period. It's the last half. And apparently there must be some transition, this is probably the best way to handle this, a transition of 30 days, probably after the judgment of another prince that is coming, that Daniel talks about, Messiah, the prince, he will arrive and there is going to be a period of judgment when he comes. We're going to look at that. Jesus describes that in the Olivet Discourse, or portion of it. So there must be some transition here before a millennial kingdom is set up. 
And then there's that additional 45 days later on in another passage of Daniel. But interestingly, what he's focusing there is a desecration of the temple, and he's talking about essentially beyond, not only Daniel's day, beyond the first century, but beyond that. And I think Jesus might be referring to all three of these passages, at least chapter 9, and probably at least chapter 12, and probably chapter 11. Now, there's a hermeneutical... Boy, we're running out of time here. There's a hermeneutical principle in relationship to Bible prophecy. Scholars call it the law of double reference. And this concept is that when the prophet sees a prophecy, he sees it, I'm representing the prophecy, he sees it, kind of the composite of that prophecy... And he only sees it, he sees it from his perspective, and it looks like it's just one event. In other words, he's prophesying one thing, and that seems to be all that there is. But, it appears from the perspective of the New Testament, that some of that may be fulfilled close to the time of the prophet. And it may have another second fulfillment, even in the first century. Ultimately, that prophecy is not totally and completely fulfilled until the second coming. So all the prophet is looking at, he's looking at it from this perspective. In other words, he's seeing it this way. He doesn't see the multiple fulfillments. Does that make sense? So some prophecies kind of recur, and this isn't something the theologians came up with. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. This comes from what Jesus does in interpreting John the Baptist. Do you remember that passage? In fact, let's read that passage. I don't remember exactly, right around verse 14. What's verse 14 say? Who's got it? Matthew 17? Read that one. Okay. Okay, before that passage, we'll start with 11, but before that passage, the disciples, remember at the Transfiguration... Moses and Elijah appear. So the disciples ask, what's the deal with Elijah? Okay. They're thinking of Malachi chapter 3 that predicts Elijah coming before the Messiah. Now read verse 11. Read it loud. Elijah, what? Future is coming. Alright. Keep reading. Elijah has come already? What? <laughs> okay, and then it's interpreted. Okay. John the Baptist fulfilled the role and the ministry of Elijah in the first coming. He was the prophet that preceded the Messiah, just like Malachi predicts, just like other passages predict as well. And he fulfilled the mission and the role of Elijah, John the Baptist did. First fulfillment. It was partial, and it was preceding. But Elijah will come, and the evidence is that he was already there during the transfiguration, and every aspect of that will be fulfilled in the second coming. You see that? So this comes from what Jesus does. And the text makes it clear that he's speaking of John the Baptist. Elijah came, John the Baptist, 
Elijah will come, the, the actual John the Baptist. That's why I believe one of the two witnesses, one of them will be Elijah, and they will precede the coming of Messiah, because they'll come at the beginning of the seven year, and they will announce that, uh, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because the Messiah is about to arrive. You see that? Another passage is in on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter sees a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 in that passage, but not everything was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. There's going to be a complete and total and ultimate fulfillment at the second coming. You see that? So some aspects of it were fulfilled in the first coming. So this is a prophetic principle that occurs with some passages. And I think this abomination is similar in that it took place with Antiochus Epiphanes as a prototype, perhaps 70 AD. The ultimate is yet in the future preceding the second coming. Jeremy. So the double references, the three references really? In this case, yeah. Or multiple. multiple. Yeah. yeah, multiple fulfillments. Right? And it'll take place in the tribulation, and we've run out of time, so we need to stop there. You might jot these down, and we'll pick up here, and then we'll go into the next passage. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 4. It describes what's happening that Jesus is describing in Matthew. And Revelation 13, 14 through 15, I think, is another description in the book of Revelation of the same thing that's happening. And just to be clear so that you understand what you're reading there, there's going to be this personage that we call Antichrist, who is going to stand up in the temple, standing in the temple, Jesus says. He will proclaim himself to be God. He will set up an image. That image appears to come to life. He's going to perform a miracle. In fact, he's going to experience something of a death and resurrection. And he will proclaim himself God in the temple. And I think uh, Paul is describing that in 2 Thessalonians 2. And we have more detail in Revelation chapter 13. To give you a closing thought here. We are the salt of the earth in a dying culture. Politics is not the savior. Who wants to close for us? Mary Lee. Father, thank you for, thank you, Father, for opening our eyes and our hearts to understand what we are saying. Thank you that you are in us to be obedient servants of yours. You will straighten us. Give us courage. Grab a hold of the courage that you offer to us. You are all the things in Jesus' name.